my name is Jenny Kwong. Welcome to Earthlink on CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary on Treaty 7 lands and Métis Region 3. Today I have on the show Jason Memo, Artistic Director of Ignite Festival, put together by Sage Theatre in Calgary. In the past, it took place at Pump House Theatre and nearby places. This year, it is happening online from June 10th to the 13th. Today, I'm, I have on the phone uh, Jason Memo. Uh, welcome. Hello. Thanks for having me. And so, uh, tell us what is the Ignite Festival? So the Ignite Festival is a festival of emerging artists in multiple series. We do theater, dance, improvisation. Uh, we do a provocation series where the artists can explore kind of a, a sort of a wider range of artistic experience that's meant to, uh, to, to provoke the audience or provoke the artist. So, yeah, and we've been doing that for, um, I think this will be our 16th year, Sweet 16. And so this year, COVID-19 has impacted the festival. So how is the festival different this year? <laughs> yes, it's completely different. Normally, if you came to the Ignite Festival, you would come to, uh, to a theater or, uh, or a location. Um, uh, we've done them in the Pump House Theater for many years, and we've also done them in the West Village Theater and the areas around the Pump House. Um, but this year is going to be different. This year, we're going to do it uh, at a distance, is what we're calling it. Um, this will mean a lot of digital uh, work that we'll be presenting through streaming or through uh, other other means of approaching it through the Internet, but there is also going to be some work that is provided at a distance that is still analog. Um, uh, the details of that are still being worked out, but, like, for example, there might be, like, a, a delivery of a box that has uh, content that's related to a story or a, or a project in the show or... Um, or perhaps the, a stream of a uh, of an event happening live, but with no audience, um, uh, and, and in a in a remote location. So these are these are some of the ideas we're exploring as we're trying to sort of take this festival at a distance. Okay, and so uh, what are some of the shows planned for June? Um, so a smattering of those shows we have. One of them is called Anonymous, and that's a story of an Alcoholics Anonymous group that is meeting online through Zoom. Um, and uh, and the the writer has adapted what their initial project was uh, as a theater piece to this online environment. Um, we have another one called Soul Swap that is uh, that'll be a stage reading of a play uh, that that in, engages with this trans love relationship that is really trying to explore what uh, what their bodies mean in a really sort of affirming beautiful way so that's another that's another one of the scripts in the theater series we also have uh the banana conundrum is a project in uh, the provocation series and that's a theatrical a theatrical exploration of trying to navigate the world of performance uh, as a person of color um and uh that's so that's a, that's one that's being developed and then also uh, a good people, which is another one that's actually working. This is again in the provocation series. Another one that's working uh, digitally or working in a digital narrative is uh, is a story that that twists through a digital ecosystem that explores the aftermath of uh, of a of a person taking their own life. Um, and I don't want to give too much away because I think the context of that is some is is important, and I don't want them to. To lose the details in my in my report here, but uh, 
Yeah, so those are a, those are a smattering of shows that we've got happening at the festival, um, and there's still lots more. Like there's dance pieces. The uh, there's an improvising piece that's trying to figure out how to adapt to an online performance, um, and uh, yeah, uh, there's there's probably there's as I think just nearly as much work in the festival as there would have been if we were doing it live. Yeah, and so how have you been able to coordinate the festival with social distancing in place? Uh, so yeah, that's basically like a lot of what I've described about how we're doing it is is that is the answer to that. Um, uh, lots more online meetings, as I'm sure everybody's everybody's uh, having the same experience. Lots of Zoom calls, um, and uh, what we're doing is generally we're making sure that the artists are not putting themselves in any danger to gather to rehearse. So a lot of the projects are. Meeting at a distance, meeting digitally, meeting over the phone, um, to to uh, to work through their rehearsals and their decisions of their projects, and uh, and then yeah, and by doing the festival through this platform and through this style, we can also guarantee that we're not uh, that we're we're um, we're maintaining social distance while still gathering our audience in a in a in a digital and mental space, if not a physical one. Okay, and who are some of the artists and teams you are working with this year? So we've got uh, for that show that I was mentioning the Banana Conundrum. We've got Devin Katani. Um, he's a uh, UFC uh, trained actor who is he's the sort of the 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 initial force in that project, and then he's gathering artists around him to help him uh, uh, devise and build the show. Um, that's the Banana Conundrum I think I mentioned, and then Good People. Um, uh, Brian Sandberg is the person who's putting that show together, and he is a. Uh, um, sorry, just looking at my information here. I'm not actually sure what school he came from, but that, but he's a a very engaged artist that we've been at, like really excited to have have on board. Um, somebody returning actually is Emily Parkhouse. Uh, they're in the Provocation series again this year with a really interesting work. Um, And I'm um, trying to see who else uh, for our improv group. I'm just kind of I'm taking a smattering because we I could I could probably fill the whole interview with just listing all the people who are involved. Um, but uh, Christian Daly, who was again I think involved in the, with improvising last year with Ignite, is back again this year adapting his work for uh, for the digital space. And uh, actually, I'll, maybe I'll end off with Charlotte Herdman, um, who is I think a Lethbridge artist. Um, Uh, that is working on a theater piece. And I guess tell me more the different aspects of the festival, such as the provocation series. Right. So uh, well, the, the great thing about Ignite is that every year it kind of changes. Like the, um, I say, I, I would say the the content is can be vastly different year to year, but the uh, impulse and the the you know the reason for being stays the same. Um, So I think in terms of the different series this year, I would say the the provocation series is uh, is adapting a lot more this year to I think uh, exploring exploring the various um, implications of meaning uh, of what uh, of what the different uh, like through each one of these different artists they're basically interacting with what with what uh, meanings we sort of force on each other and apply to each other and expect from each other um, and expect from ourselves. That's a lot of what I'm getting out of the Provocation series this year. It's really interesting work that they're doing. Um, 
the theater series is again there they've adapted to the online space in a really interesting way um, uh, soul swap and anonymous uh, and there's another one called shellfish Eucharist uh, are all going to be um, uh, uh, adapting themselves to to the theater uh, space there's another one uh, put on by Maisie Denny who is actually she was uh, in the Ignite Festival as well last year um, uh, that we're still working out the technical details of, uh, but is going to be really fascinating. Um, and that one, that one's going to be, I think, uh, explicitly an audio piece that won't necessarily be streamed. Um, so yeah, I think it's going to be, it's going to be a very interesting, uh, collection. Um, uh, the dance pieces were, were, again, we're still working out the technical details, but the, uh, there's going to be a piece, I think, that's going to be streaming, uh, or recorded live from a uh, a sort of like a, a large open space um, that they where the dancers won't be having to get too close to each other or any audience because the audience won't be there. But uh, but it's the first time we've ever been able to take Ignite to a large open field. Um, and then actually one other thing to mention regarding artists we're working with is that the audition process this year I think has been really interesting as we look for artists because we don't because we can't gather them locally there's been nothing stopping us asking them nationally and we've been talking to artists in uh in the on the, the west coast and in winnipeg montreal toronto um this is exciting because i think are artists we never would have talked to if we've been doing the festival normally so um so yeah in that respect alone i think it's really interesting and I guess talk about the mentoring aspect at the festival how does it help both mentors and mentees so that, that, that's a great question. I think the mentorship uh, relationship in Ignite is kind of the secret sauce about why it, why it works so well in, the, in Calgary. Um, uh, particularly, like, it works so well as being essentially what, what creates a layer of artists in the city that have all moved through this, this artistic experience at Ignite. Um, mentorship is uh, something that we're basically, we, what we try to do is we try to uh, help build a relationship between the artist and the uh, and the mentor, the mentor and the mentee. And I think in terms of benefit, the mentee gets a chance to uh, to frankly engage with somebody who's uh, more experienced than them and get uh, get solid feedback about their project and how it's working. Um, the the and they they also get a relationship with this mentor, somebody that has been through through the, the same steps and can. You know, gives them some uh, um, some advice and uh, some feedback and some guidance, uh, and honestly, sometimes even some like opportunities that have come through that. That that was my experience moving through Ignite uh, 15 years ago. Uh, and then for the mentors, I think honestly, it's uh, it's reinvigorating to work with an emerging artist uh, to see somebody who's who's uh, exploring uh, themselves where at a place that you haven't been for a little while. Um, and it kind of also goes the other way is that, that, uh, a mentor is a, is an artist themselves will often be looking for collaborators and, um, often they can find those collaborators among the mentees that they've worked with because they know that these people have, uh, have a solid artistic uh, skill and background and passion. Okay. And I guess uh, one last question. What about the festival you are looking forward to? Oh, geez. Um, I mean, I think I've, I'm looking forward to just about everything that I've talked about, like, I've been blown away by what these artists are, are coming up with, and uh, it's inspiring me. It's, it's making me want to try cool ideas once the festival is done. And uh, so, yeah, I, I think um, 
uh, I'm, I'm trying not to 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 uh, cop a. a uh, to to escape the question, but honestly, it's just there's there, there's too many good options. I don't think I can choose. <laughs> that was my interview with Jason Memo of Ignite Festival of Emerging Artists Hyperspace Edition. It is happening June 10th to the 13th online. Visit sagetheater.com for more information. Now here's a song from Kelly Band Raleigh with their song titled Balloon Boy. It is from the album New Times in Black and White. Kelly Band Raleigh on their first album, New Times in Black and White. 
Their music can be found on Bandcamp. Now over to co-host Nathan Taylor. Hi, this is Nathan Taylor for ArtsLink. I thought I'd take another shot at doing a show about things that you might find interesting and which don't cost much money, and that you might not know about. To start off this episode, I'd like to acknowledge the hellish state of things in this new plague era and recommend a film that covers loneliness, isolation, and madness that you can watch for free on YouTube. From 1975, The Noah. In black and white, we watch a covered dinghy wash up on a Pacific beach. Out gets a weathered G.I., We are put at ease that there is no forthcoming violence during the seeming invasion because the G.I. is seen unloading his golf clubs. The Noah is a last man alive on Earth story. It's the only film written and directed by Daniel Borla and quite the take on the single-person film concept. Settling in an abandoned military installation on the beach, the G.I. quickly squares himself away, then tries to relax. The war is quite over by now. Before too long, though, Noah loses his grip on reality and begins to populate his desolate world with imaginary friends. This will be your bunk. Right over mine. Keep the area clean. Keep your nose out of trouble. Reveille at 0600 hours. Morning chow at 0730. And taps at 2100 hours. Reveille. Chow. Taps? You may not like it, my boy, but you have just joined this man's army. Wild. And how. This would be Robert Strauss's final role, and as Noah, we see him continually create, then lose a utopia within his own mind. He is the only actor on screen, but the film is populated with hundreds of phantom voices, some who, unusually, have conversations with each other when Noah is elsewhere on the island. The film becomes more abstract as it progresses, showing the Noah's struggle to keep his dream from spiraling out of control, and he tries a couple of things that would seem to make sense, like instead of creating friends out of whole cloth, which led to conflict from them having their own personalities, he instead becomes a schoolmaster, raising a whole invisible class from the ABCs through economics to graduation. I'm sure that you'll all do well, as long as you bear in mind The customer is always right. Time is money. Business is business. But mind your own business. And crime does not But it's very hard to keep order in a dream. And in the Noah, sounds and images become more speedy and chaotic. The imaginary people with their inner lives and thoughts, all constructed by Noah, give way to a wall of sound. Speeches from JFK and other histories that literally no one else is around to remember anymore. I will admit that the film became somewhat exhausting due to the simple, repetitive nature of Noah the man. He is literally the drunk encountered in a bar complaining about how much money the army owes him. But what to do when this person literally created you to keep him company? Hopefully, he made you an enthusiastic listener. There have been interesting films with only one person on screen before, but I've never seen one done quite in this way. So if you're in the mood for a unique flick about the end of the world right now, you can find it for free on YouTube, The Noah from 1975. One of the great pleasures of poking around the internet archive, archive archive.org, is coming across great swaths of content without even looking for them. 
I don't know which one I came across first, but I'm happy to report that you can watch nearly the entirety of the works of Jerry and Sylvia Anderson on there. Best known for the use of, quote, super marionation, they created an entirely unique run of television series in the 1960s that combined puppetry with intricate scale models and increasingly real explosions and increasingly real people working as body doubles. There's plenty online you can read about on the work of these magnificent Andersons, so I thought I'd just take a few minutes to bring attention to some things I enjoyed discovering for myself when watching these shows. I was intrigued to find the later efforts, such as Joe 90 and The Secret Service, and after giving them a go, they represent a very impressive leap from the dummies uh, you might be used to seeing on the Thunderbirds. Indeed, if you start with the first Super Marionation show, Supercar, the puppets are extremely cartoonish, and you can see where they progressed to the more human-like designs of the Thunderbirds characters. By the end of the 60s, with Joe 90 and the Secret Service, the puppets look fantastic, and the more frequent use of body doubles actually gave me some uncanny valley feelings in some of the sequences. I mean, they really do a lot of cutting between humans and puppets. I'd like to play some clips from Joe 90. In the pilot episode, there's this little bit that sums up the main idea for the series and also gets tapped into, uh, I'm sure, the rich vein of James Bond crazy kids England was full of. Now listen, Joe. WIN has provided you with some specially made equipment. First, a pair of glasses. Built in are the electrodes that your father normally connects to your temples that enable you to use the knowledge that's been transferred. Without them, you'll be Joe. But when you're wearing them, you'll have all the knowledge and experience of a Russian jet pilot. Next, a pistol, specially made for you. It's small, light, and will fire 200 times without reloading. This may seem a strange thing to say to WIN's most special agent, but we have a long journey tomorrow, and I think you ought to be getting to bed. What, now? Yes, now. Thanks, Uncle Sam, for the glasses and the gun and that other thing. I mean, is that awesome for a nine-year-old or what? And with an approving guardian looking on. Well, in one of the moments that propelled this kiddie show to high art for me was this exchange right at the end of the pilot. In this two-minute clip, you'll hear one narrative carpet being pulled out from under us and two really abrupt changes in tone, although I think only one was deliberate. Also, I must say that the use of overlapping, echoing voices is paired with a series of still images that I'm sure I've seen ripped off in another adults argue around a child scene in a movie somewhere. And so, Professor McLean, that was the sort of operation that could be handled by your boy Joe with the assistance of the big rat. Of course, we all know there is no such aircraft as the MiG-242, and indeed there is no conflict between Soviet Russia and the West. I simply made up that little story to illustrate the sort of thing Joe could do to help us, if we had your approval. No, 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 Professor McLean. You really expect me to... Dad, you've got to let me do it. Keep out of this, Joe. Go on, son. Now, look. Now, look. You look, Mr. Weston. Although Joe is not my real son... But we know all... Mary died. That boy has meant more to me than... we know all that. No boy ever had a better father. You expect me to risk his life. Just try to see our side. It's out of the question. Professor McLean, the opportunity's here to prevent war. find someone else. To save human life. Joe's life comes... Make new discoveries. Just hold it, will you? Think of the potential, Mac. But Joe is so young. You won't regret it, Mac. I hope not, Sam. I hope not. Thanks. Joe! Can I do it, Dad? Can I work with Uncle Sam? 
Oh, I suppose so, if you're sure you want to. But don't come crying to me if you get hurt. The Secret Service would be the final supermarionation effort from Gary Anderson, who had switched to, quote, super macromation for his 1980s puppet series Terrorhawks, which kind of looks like a sci-fi spitting image. The show deked me out a bit by showing the lead character as a full-on human before switching to puppetry, which makes sense after doing some research and finding out that the gently eccentric pastor-slash-super-spy was played by comedian Stanley Unwin, known for his made-up wordplay and language Unwinese, which is inserted into the scripts to give the unassuming pastor a chance to confuse his way out of trouble. Anyways, not knowing who Stanley Unwin is won't ruin your enjoyment of this show. I think it's a technical marvel personally. That being said, the show's central concept of a super spy pastor can get annoying. I mean, he's an actual pastor, so even during action scenes, everyone's shouting the word father a lot. I was also surprised to find the theme song for Secret Service to sound just like the Swingle Singers. And why not? For a show that features such incongruity as a pastor spy who drives a Model T, why not have this as your theme song? In actuality, the Swingle Singers did record the theme song, but wanted more money than Anderson was willing to pay for international rights. So, to get that ersatz Swingle singing sound, he got the same people who did the theme for his other series, Supercar and Stingray. On that note, I'd like to change gears a bit, and take a moment to hype the work of Barry Gray, who wrote the music for these shows. Here's the one most people might know, the beginning of The Thunderbirds. Five, four... Those swirling, desperate strings paired with frantic bongos is an interesting choice that Gray uses throughout his work for the Andersons. Stand by for action! We are about to launch Stingray.
happen in the next half hour. One thing I like about the shows uh, is how much music plays into it, both plot-wise and just for fun. We see the way pirate radio is done in the future by actually launching yourself into space to spin tracks from orbit. We have a song, That Dangerous Game, being central to a mysterious sabotage story. And in this clip, they wanted a wordless spy sequence to play out and ordered up a pretty rockin' tune from Barry. I particularly like this one because... You've seen this kind of scene a million times, and it's not that hard to imagine how it plays out. An intruder sneaks in and kills a sentry in order to steal the plot device for the episode. The music peaks, and we hear the fatal gunshot. Sorry, all six gunshots. This is a show for children, and I'm sure even Ernst Stavro Blofeld himself would consider that a bit much. So do please check out the nearly complete works of Jerry and Sylvia Anderson, which can be found on the Internet Archive, for now at least. That's it for ArtsLink for this month. We'll talk to you folks again in July. <laughs>